Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, joining us now is Paul Tucker. He's former deputy governor of the Bank of England. Well, his latest book is called Tom, Unelected Power. I know this is going to make Tom's must-read list. The quest for legitimacy in central banking and the regulatory state. Still with us, Rupert Harrison of BlackRock and John Norman of J.P. Morgan. Where are your books? I need I need books from everyone on set. Paul Tucker, thank you for joining us. Congratulations on the book. First of all, when you look back to Lehman's, when you look back at just you know that 08 period, when did you first realize about the scale of how enormous it was what we were going through? I think when Bear Stearns failed and was rescued, I recall a meeting at the Bank of England where I said that had it not been rescued, there would have been mayhem. And a month later, one of the directors came back to me and said, that was quite a thing to say, defend it. And so I did. I think the tragedy, and I don't think anyone has said anything intelligent about this, and I'm not going to, is the wasted six months between Bear Stearns and Lehman. Why on both sides of the Atlantic weren't the big dealers, the big banks, forced to deleverage in their wholesale market commitments in a controlled way rather than in their lending to the real economy? Why wasn't Lehman is reputed to have been debating an equity injection um, from Korea? Why didn't that happen? Why didn't the U.S. authorities push them to do it. And there's too much discussion about all the liquidity measures that were taken, some of which I devised, and of course central bankers think they were quite good, and not enough discussion about missed opportunities by supervisors and regulators. But why? Because they didn't understand the interconnectedness or they didn't want to see it? I don't know why. I think it's implausible to say people didn't understand the interconnectedness. Loretta Mester just said um, that we learnt things about the interconnectedness. I don't think we learnt a, a great deal. If you go back and look at things that the Fed, the BIS, the Bank of England said in the years before the crisis, people knew the system was so horribly interconnected that they wouldn't be able to understand how it would unravel. The mystery, and it is a mystery, um, is why people... If you provide liquidity, you don't solve the ultimate problem, but you buy time. How was the time used by regulators and supervisors? I still don't think we have a good answer to that question on either side of the Atlantic. Paul, on the wonderful voices set that we heard before you came on, we had Loretta Mester of the Cleveland Fed, who is truly one of our best mathematicians on all this. And I go to a chapter in your book, The Limits of Design. Are we asking too much of central banking if the system locks up, as Loretta talked about in a 10-back look back, if the system locks up as the correlations become so tight, is there a limit to the design? Yes, is the simple answer. If you expect central banks and agencies like central banks to make the world uh, a perfect place, um, this is doomed to, to fail. If you ask them... To, in, to deliver stable and low inflation over time, ensure that the core of the banking system is resilient. They can do that. They can't manage the credit cycle. They can't manage asset prices. They can do those simple things. And in the years during the crisis and since, um, a lot of countries have fallen into the trap of, of expecting the central banks too much. And that's not wholly the central bank's fault. It's because politicians, it's convenient for politicians to vacate the space and leave the central banks as the U.S. cavalry. And it is very tempting for the 
central banks to occupy that. Actually, it's terribly difficult for them not to try to do something when the politicians don't step up to the plate. In the United States, of course, this is centers around the difficulty of fiscal policy of any kind. And to, to all three of you, John Norman, jump in here if you would, please. And I think it's a question for all three of you, Francine, lead this discussion, which is the solution is more capital on the bank's balance sheets. That just seems too simplistic to me, John. Is it? I think that is too simplistic. I think the underlying problem at the end of every business cycle is a leverage build up somewhere. And it is helpful to have banks well capitalized. That's one less source of leverage. But it's very difficult to keep households and corporates from building up leverage during a long business cycle with low interest rates. And that's why you can always, I think, expect some kind of high volatility decline in asset prices when we eventually go into a downturn. And there's only so much that central bankers can do to try to manage that, that deleveraging process. No, no, I'd agree with that. I think that uh, you know, more capital obviously is a, a big part of the solution, but that's never going to prevent failures or um, you know, the next crisis is going to be different in some sense. I mean, I think Paul's point is a very interesting one. I mean, I think the UK is a good ex- interesting example, actually, of a country where we've probably gone further than almost any other country in explicitly giving the Bank of England now a remit to not just protect the banks from the cycle, but to try and protect the cycle from the banks. So you have the kind of financial policy committee that is tasked to try and step in and has already done that in areas like vital let uh, in the UK uh, or is, is increasingly getting active in sort of counter-cyclical capital measures to the banks. Uh, and so far, I think, that the, I think that the politics of that has been acceptable. I think the public are willing to allow central banks to step in, whether that's politicians trying to push the responsibility away from themselves towards the central banks. So, you know, we'll only find out the next time it, you know, it really gets bad. Uh, Paul Tucker, where are we more vulnerable today than we were on the eve of Lehman Brothers? Um shadow banking. Um, in China or worldwide? Probably a bit in the United States as well. I don't want to say more vulnerable in the United States than before 2007-8, but I think there's been a woefully weak appetite to address shadow banking in the, in the States. Mm-hmm. And a, a policy of we'll monitor it, spot the problems, and then reform policy to catch up is doomed to failure. By, some, by the time something is big enough to be a systemic threat, it has a real right. lobbying power in Congress and, and elsewhere. I think the policymakers have, have ducked this. It's, it's difficult, but they've ducked it, and I think that's been right. a mistake. Another one, which I know pre- preoccupies some people in the Senate, um, is so my generation of policymakers have pushed, forced a lot of the derivatives markets to go via central counterparties. That's good. I still support that policy. But what happens if a central counterparty fails? We are 10 years on. Um, no one in the United States has said anything compelling about that. It isn't even clear that there are legal powers to address it. In Europe, more has been said and done, but the truth is that Europe is waiting to try to do something jointly with the United States. This will be, imagine one of these things fails. I'm one of the few people on the planet that have dealt with a failed um, CCP. This will be inexcusable. Well, one of the lessons that we've learned here, we've got, I guess, Phillips Curve and DSG, all the fancy phrases back to the Marshallian cross. Where's behavioral economics in all this? Are you guys still ignoring Robert Schiller? Are you still ignoring Thaler of Chicago? I, I don't think, actually, that was the, the problem before the crisis. I think it was a partly a problem in the Fed. The, the Greenspan doctrine meant that supervision and regulation was neglected in the Fed. It wasn't um, an enticing or sexy place to to work. I think the difficulty is I think people have embraced the importance of behavioral economics 
I'm not sure that they know how to operationalize it. How do you, how do you make yeah. it part of day-to-day policy? It's all very well you and I um, sitting on television talking about it. If you actually had the job, how do you, how do you spot irrational exuberance right. from harmless exuberance? How do you spot the telco debt bubble, which nearly did bring down banks in the early zeros, from the dot-com equity bubble, which didn't, frankly? Paul, the heart of this, and I go back to Mervyn King's historic speech in Scotland, which I thought was an early financial crisis landmark. But, Paul, what is so important here is the theory of a central bank somehow getting out front, of being ex post or being ex ante. Are we delusional that we think central banks can get out front of economic trends, economic data, and the behavior of an economic system? We'd be delusional to put all our chips on that. Yeah, sometimes they can do that. I mean, I've just criticized Alan Greenspan, but Alan Greenspan did a good job in spotting the the uplift in productivity in the late 90s and the early zeros. Sometimes you get that right, but you can't rely on it, which comes back to me. We we are not going to spot, or we cannot rely on spotting where the next crisis will come from and how bad it will be. All we can do is make the system more resilient, and that includes, vitally, being able to cope with failure. So there should be much more attention um, in all of these programs on how are plans going to make the big banks and dealers um, resolvable so that we can wind them down or recapitalize them in a crisis rather than turning to the taxpayer. And I, I think it's your responsibility, both of you, to somehow make that sexy. People like me aren't going to be good so at making sexy. that sexy. People like you are good at making that sexy and you should try. There you go, Tom. Paul, I can tell you that Tom. in the 400 years that I've done this show, nobody has told me I'm making it sexy. Joining us, Chris Cassanti of Cassanti Investments. Yelman Allen are in with us as well from Bloomberg, who wrote so many of our important stories on banking, on shadow banking. And she is timeless. She has not aged a moment since 2008. Susan Lund joins us from Washington with McKinsey. Susan, congratulations on your 14-page jewel on what happened and what didn't change. Tell us from McKinsey Global Institute what has not changed. Well, what's not changed is that the world still has a lot of debt. It's a different kind of debt. It's taken out by governments and corporations this time instead of households. But after all of the tumult of 2008, we really expected that there would be what we call deleveraging or debt reduction. And instead, we've got $72 trillion more debt than we had back then. Within this, and this goes back, of course, to one of the great books of this era, the Reinhardt and Rogoff effort this time is different. The two professors don't make a distinction. They say you've got to add private debt to public debt. When you add those two together, how ugly is the picture? Well, it's uh, debt is higher in the United States, in the U.K., in Ireland, and Spain than it was on the eve of the crisis. And I think of those as sort of the core crisis countries that had very over-indebted household sectors and real estate bubbles that ended very badly. Um, in the rest of the world, that was not at the epicenter of the crisis. Uh, all forms of debt have continued to grow. Um, in Canada, our neighbors to the north, the uh, land of very sound banking, their household debt is now at the same level as the U.S. was back in 2007. When you look at developing countries, the change has been even more dramatic. And this is why now we're having problems in Turkey, in Argentina, 
um, and other countries that were able to borrow because interest rates were so incredibly low. Investors were willing to uh, take a little bit higher risk to get returns. And so emerging markets, both companies and governments, were able to borrow um, at unprecedented levels. Now, as we look forward to rising interest rates, um, and combined with, in some countries, unsound macroeconomic policies, we're going to see some problems. Yeah. Where are we going to see problems, Susan? If you look at the spaces which may be more, more vulnerable today than they were on the eve of the Lehman collapse, where is it? Well, in developing countries, it's always a combination of too much debt and then combined with some macroeconomic shocks. So in Turkey, we've seen the lira plunge nearly 50% since the start of the year, and a lot of their debt is in foreign currency. So a company that was paying a certain amount on debt service now is paying nearly double what they were if they're earning local currency revenues. Same problem in Argentina, which just asked for an IMF bailout. Uh, so we will see some tremors, um, I think, in emerging markets as we look ahead. Beyond that, in the U.S. and in Europe, I think that the troubles are more specific pockets, for instance, uh, U.S. retail. But overall, the picture doesn't look so bad. Um, Yalman, through your, your reporting, so Tom and I have been asking a lot of the guests, you know, first of all, what the consequences have been from the financial crisis. Um, and I've heard everything from, you know, this was actually the stepping stone of populism because of uh, central bank action to uh, banks being overregulated. What do you see as, as the kind of definitive consequence of the financial crisis and the Lehman collapse? I mean, the, the banks have definitely been regulated more. <clears throat> overregulated, that's a debate. You know, the, the, the uh, uh, banks say they're overregulated. Uh, some critics say they're still not regulated enough. But they're definitely more regulated, which means they have, they're, they're safer. Uh, after the crisis, you know, a lot of regulation worldwide, not just U.S., Europe, but everybody, uh, Basel uh, Committee in, in Switzerland, they did increase capital requirements, liquidity requirements, all kinds of things that make the banking system safer, which meant things shifted to shadow banks a little bit. Shadow banks, they're everything that is not a bank, but that still, you know, is involved in the lending. So that, that's, that's an area that's harder to monitor. Regulators know mm -hmm. less about it. They pay more attention to it. They didn't before. They pay more attention to it. But, you know, and there have been political and economic repercussions as well. Inequality rising. Everybody, a lot of analysts have said that's because of, of what happened after the crisis, which is the, the easy monetary policy that lowered interest rates and, and, and bought trillions of dollars of uh, bonds uh, by the Fed and, and the other central banks, European, uh, right. Asian. And, and so all these things, you know, it, it has changed the world. We have, we have risk shift from, from the, maybe the banking system to other corners of the financial system. You know, so the dangers are, are right. still there. As, as mm -hmm. Susan was saying, there's so much more debt that it's clearly not safe enough in the world. Yeah, and you and Mark Pittman led our coverage on this. What was going on at the time, it was hugely forensic reporting as well. And part of that forensic reporting is whether the banks... From where you sit, do we need greater bank concentration in America, or do we need to diffuse the too big to fail? Is that great Andrew Ross Sorkin phrase? Do we need to diffuse the too big to fails to the regional banks? I felt, 
you know, that when I first came to the U.S. 25 years ago, I thought there were too many little banks around the country. And That's because you're the College of the Whisperer in Ohio. <laughs> there were five banks on all four corners. There were. There were one, my, bank, my first bank in the U.S., Wayne County National Bank, had one branch. It, yeah. didn't, have, it didn't have two. Um, but then, you know, as I've covered banking uh, in this country and around the world, I've looked at banking mm. systems around the world, I've realized that, of course, smaller banks, the, the biggest advantage of having right. all those smaller <clears throat> banks is that risk is spread out. You know, one bank fails, we have FDIC yeah, insurance, the FDIC, yeah. FDIC takes care of it. Okay. But, so the big <clears throat> banks are threatening and it's always tough to, to make sure that right. their risks are not too much. And when they right. fail, can, can okay, they Okay, really I've got to make it? some money out of this. Chris, can <laughs> you buy the banks and which flavor of banks is where the value is? I, I think you can, Tom. But, but I get an overall feeling in this conversation that we're talking about the last crisis, almost like talking about with the Maginot line holes. That's the theme today, Chris. Right. Get no, no, I get it. But, but where is the weak point? It's probably not going to be the, the big U.S. banks. I, I, I look at emerging markets. I look at where the stress points are today. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, we have more debt, but their GDP is a little higher. It's, it's China that's really levered up. So that's a big concern. And, and we've nationalized the debt, right. taking it from the private sector, moving it to the public sector, yeah. which is exactly what we wanted to do. Francine? Right. Yeah, Susan. So one of the, uh, you know, we had Paul Tucker, deputy, former deputy uh, governor of the Bank of England, and he was saying what we should really be watching out for is shadow banking in the U.S. and China. What do we do? What should we do with shadow banking? <clears throat> Well, shadow banking, by definition, is always a bit of a troublesome area because we just don't know a lot about it. So at this point in the United States, half of all new mortgages are coming from non-bank entities. Um, And those mortgages are going largely into Ginny May, which is the third government-owned mortgage securitizer that you don't hear a lot about. So that's definitely an area worth watching in the U.S. But I'll tell you what's different, and maybe I'm just always an optimist, but there are some positive changes in the financial system. For one, we don't have the trillions and trillions of dollars of derivatives and collateralized debt obligations, CDL squares, credit default swaps that were built on the U.S. subprime mortgages. And that's what allowed um, a small corner of the U.S. mortgage market uh, to then create this global damage and, and, you know, throw the world into a global recession. All of that has disappeared, so that's very good news. So the risks that are out there could create losses, but it's not going to have the ripple effects that we saw. Um, in China, right. they've got a different story altogether. Uh, talk to me about China, Susan, quickly. Sorry. Uh, so China has levered up, as was mentioned, Uh, The good news for at least the rest of the world is that all of that debt is coming from Chinese investors and Chinese banks. So if there were to be a crisis, it's going to be a a domestic financial crisis within China. Now, it doesn't have obvious international repercussions through financial channels. Of course, it's the world's second largest economy. So if China's growth were to slow down, that would affect lots of countries around the world. We're thrilled to develop that conversation this morning with Jean-Claude Trichet. He is a former president of the European Central Bank. We're honored that Mr. Trichet could join us. And joining us as well, the great Euro optimist, Eric Nielsen of Unicredit. When Europe was flat on its back, Nielsen was pounding the table next to Francine in London saying, no, Tom, it's not that grim. Let's start with Mr. Nielsen. We're supposed to start with Mr. Trichet, but Eric, I'm going to start with you. Brief Mr. Trichet on 
a state of Europe right now. Is it Eurosclerosis or Eric Nielsen? Is it a Europe of growth? I think it's uh, it's uh, by far closer to the latter point you made, uh, Europe of growth. We have had uh, years of, of one and a half to two percent growth, not as much as you kind of would wish. But uh, but if you look at it in per capita terms, we are doing basically as well as the U.S. And certainly if you look at for 90 percent of the population, because right. in America, the growth really sits with the top 10 and, and we don't have the same income distribution issues as they have. Mr. Trichet with us through this half hour. And yes, we'll talk about brutal moves in the end. But Mr. Trichet, on Lehman, one of the great observations interview to interview is that the Europe banking system is behind the United States' system. What does European banking need to do to modernize, to catch up with what the giants of the United States are doing? Of course, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, There is a a big uh, domination of the uh, investment bank in in New York and banks in the U.S. in particular, uh, which uh, is very paradoxical because, after all, the crisis was born in Wall Street the epicenter of the crisis, of the big, big crisis, which is as grave, was as grave as the 29, 30s in the 20th century, is really born in the U.S. But uh, what you have to get in mind is that uh, there is a big structural difference between the U.S. and Europe. In the U.S., at the moment of the burst of the crisis, uh, the financing of the U.S. economy was made through banks at, with only 25 percent of the financing and through markets with 75%. It, is exa- it was uh, exactly the reverse in Europe. 25 for the markets, 75% of the financing for the banks. And that, of course, is a first explanation because the recapitalization of banks in Europe was much more costly in terms of uh, percentage of GDP than it was the case in the United States of America. There are many reasons for those differences. One important reason is the existence of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which we have mentioned previously in, uh, in, on, on your screen. And uh, that explains why a very large part of the financing of the uh, U.S. economy comes out of, I would say, semi-public institution and not through the banks. But that being said, of course, uh, the Europeans have a lot of hard work to do. And as you know, structural reforms of first importance have been decided, including the single supervision authority uh, with the ultimate decision taken by the central bank. So the European were at, uh, I would say, disadvantage in terms of structural difference with the U.S., They took a number of decisions, and I'm very much on the side of the optimism that was expressed by the previous speaker. Uh, Monsieur Trichet, the concern at the time when Lehman collapsed is that actually market participants, overall regulators, uh, even central bankers to some extent, did not realize the interconnectedness of the banking system. What do we know about the banking system now? Is there a danger that actually we could go back to that 08 financial crisis? Well, what we know is that uh, we have decided to reinforce considerably the resilience of the banks uh, at a global level and through appropriate uh, institutions in Basel in particular with the backing of the G20. So a lot has been done to reinforce resilience. But that does not, uh, su- that does not suggest that if we had a big new shock 
we wouldn't have contagion. And uh, I think that this is one of the emerging property which comes out of what you just said, the generalized interconnectedness, not only between institutions, but between markets uh, and between economies at a global level. So that is, that is uh, suggesting that we must be very prudent, very cautious in all respect. And uh, I must confess, I am not that tranquil myself when I look at the overall global indebtedness, which continues to grow when we know that the crisis came from many, many causes, in particular, of course, one of the main causes was the indebtedness, public right. and private, at a global level. Monsieur Trichet, this is an important point. Indebtedness where? Is it globally? And are you talking about shadow banking? To, to um, I would say, uh, go uh, to, to, to the bottom line. From 2000 up to 2007, 2008, uh, we had a very big augmentation of uh, overall indebtedness, public and private, <clears throat> coming 90% from the advanced economy, 10% for the from the emerging economy. After the crisis, we continue to grow leverage at a global level, public and private, not, not exactly the same in various countries, and the, the big difference is that it, this uh, global leverage augments 50% because of the advanced economy right. and 50% because of the uh, emerging economy. So that makes an enormous difference. Still, if there is something like a global economy, if uh, the global indebtedness as a percentage of global GDP is a good indicator of vulnerability, then we are in a very well, vulnerable situation. Mr. Trichet, then I want to go to your engineering background here and talk about leakages, which is Newtonian physics, but let's go leakages within the financial system. <laughs> Jean-Claude Trichet, one of the great themes of our look back of 10 years has been the price and the cost of quantitative easing. What is the impact of these balance sheets that Draghi, Powell, and others have to face? What is the impact of those balance sheets, and particularly, Mr. Trichet, on emerging markets? Well, first of all, it seems to me that the central banks did what they had to do. They were in a crisis which uh, had not the central <clears throat> banks been bold and swift, we would have had a great depression. And we would have been in a dramatic situation for all our fellow citizens in all advanced economy. So the banks, the central banks did what they had to do uh, because the situation was absolutely dramatic. And of course, uh, when the situation is much less uh, dramatic, they have to withdraw progressively, which is being done uh, successively because the, the uh, uh, sequence of events were not the same in uh, the U.S. and in Europe, but you, we, you see that uh, they are progressively withdrawing. So that's, there is nothing to say about that, it seems to me. The, the central bank did their job, and uh, in any case, the counterfactual would have been much more dramatic. That's absolutely obvious. Uh, now, it's true that there is not only the central banks. They are not the only game in town. You also have, of course, all the other partners, private sector, the other institutions, the governments and the parliament. And there, I have to say, things were not, are not done as they should, in my opinion. Structural reforms are mm -hmm. lagging. And uh, the, most of the 
uh, advanced economy and, and also the emerging economy are uh, not doing a good job in terms of uh, fiscal policies, in terms of precisely augmentation of leverage uh, in the public debt and so forth. So we really have to mobilize all partners to be much more aware of the fact that if we want to avoid the repetition of the drama which took place 10 years ago, we have to step in. This is a special moment for us in economics. We've done that with Milton Friedman and Robert Lucas. We did that with Stiglitz and Rogoff at Davos. And now joining Professor Rogoff of Harvard University, Mariana Mazzucato. She is at the University College uh, London in a very, very important and controversial book out, The Value of Everything. I'm going to make it as clear as I can. The first 40 pages of this book should be read by every single economic student worldwide, Ken Rogoff, as it traces the history of economics. Mariana, I want to go to Ken on the value of everything. What she leads with here, Ken, is history matters in economics from mercantilism, not the neo-mercantilism of Trump, the mercantilism to Jevons and on to the modern age. Are we teaching enough Mazzucato history in our economics? No, we're not. I, I, I say we're not. That uh, you'd be People now think economic history was something before for 2000 exactly. and uh, trying to tell them, you know, that, you know, what people thought about these issues for a long time, our ancestors weren't so foolish. The rap, Marion, is, is the idea here that you are touting some form of a Marxist agenda, and yet a careful read of your book is, no, that's not the case. Give us the nuance here of inequality as you see it. So what I argue is basically that value used to be hotly debated between economists. Today we have basically one theory of value that passes for Econ 101, and the value debate, strangely, has actually just gone to business school. So the word is talked about in terms of shareholder value, value chains, shared value. But we have a problem in economics that we actually have this tautology. We measure value by basically prices, which are supposed to reveal value. But that's actually what allows someone like Lloyd Blankfein, one year after Lehman, that we were just talking about, to, with a straight face, say that Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. Because that's the Harvard fact. faculty was, but we won't go there. Yeah. Um, and so this is also why, by the way, yesterday the head of Nostrum Pharmaceuticals, again with a straight face, said that he had the moral imperative to increase the price of the antibiotic that his company yeah. was producing by 400%, right, to please yeah. the shareholders. So when we focus so much on, you know, maximizing shareholder value, which many people have criticized, but they haven't, act, I think, gone the full way to really debunk the underlying right. theory of value that maximizing right, shareholder value assumes. Yeah, and good morning from London. It's Francine. How would you measure it then? I mean, you know, forget shareholder value. It's a price that you can measure with, you know, minimum uh, wage, with everything. So if it's not a price that you want to fixate on, how do you measure uh, everything that's around us? Well, it's funny because Tom just mentioned uh, Marx, but, you know, we could also go back to Adam Smith and David Ricardo. They actually did something that in some ways is in the popular debate today. They really worried about production, the division of labor, mechanization, and the effect that this had on the profit-wage relationship. So they had an understanding of value that was tied to the objective conditions of production. Forget whether it was the labor theory of value or something else, but it had a 
a fundamental connection to how we actually produce goods, how we organize production itself, again, through the division of labor, Adam Smith's pin factory, and their understanding of value actually then determined their understanding of price. Today, we have the reverse logic. We start with price, and we assume that reveals value. So it's not that we should throw prices away. That's not the point. But that's, that, that's very different from thinking that prices themselves um, are, are, are what value is. I mean, just think of how we measure GDP. You know, it doesn't actually include all sorts of things that we know are valuable from care work to, you know, if you marry your cleaner, GDP goes down um, <laughs> because something that was being paid for all of a sudden perhaps isn't. When we pollute, GDP goes up because we have to clean that pollution. So, but, you know, this problem is somehow has actually been talked about by you know, feminists and environmentalists. What we haven't talked about is how GDP is full of rent. There's a difference between rents and profits. And we, when we have a subjective theory of value, and by that I mean really based on preferences, again, so it's preferences and prices that are revealing value, then it becomes really easy for rent extraction and I would call value extraction activities to present themselves as value creation yeah. activities simply Mariana. because they have prices. And so on a concrete level, what does that change? So if we measure it differently, does it mean that we talk more about redistribution? Does it mean that actually it would help with inequality and therefore with populism? Well, first, and I'd say for, first most, uh, foremost, we should admit that value is created collectively. So just coming back to the pharmaceutical drugs, which is really concrete because people do die when they can't afford the drugs for such essential medicines like antibiotics, you know, in the United States, the National Institutes of Health spend over $32 billion a year on the research that actually leads to these drugs. Now, the prices of these drugs should obviously yeah. reflect the contribution of the taxpayer, well, which is correct. enormous is in the high-risk stage. Ken Rogoff, oh, a few years ago, there were a set of doctors at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York, including your father, who had the government support of medicine. She's saying in her book, it's evaporated. I mean, essentially, we're not using government like we used to use government in the days when Strong, where your father was, was a massive research center. Is well, that true? Uh, first, I want to say congratulations on a, a wonderful book. And uh, I agree, people, uh, people should read it. Um, you know, there are two separate issues here. Uh, one, I think, is the rise of monopoly in the economy, which is producing the rents that uh, Mariana is talking about. Uh, the failure of economists to define antitrust policy in this new age of ideas. Uh, how do you define whether Amazon's a monopoly, Google's a monopoly? They obviously are, and economists haven't figured out a good way to say it. A separate issue is the size of government in a world where trade, where uh, technology is producing things it always right. has, but faster and and. Uh, taxes and transfers need to compensate for that, or payments in kind in the case of health care schooling. Our next guest poses this question. Was the financial crisis wasted? Writing in Project Syndicate, RBS chairman uh, Howard Davies uh, shares these thoughts. While financial regulation has been materially strengthened, which is clearly the most important thing, its implementation remains in the hands of a patchwork quilt of national agencies. That's uh, how Davies joins us now here on set in London. Very good morning to you. Morning. Um, thanks for joining us. So when you refer to this patchwork quilt... Can we talk about uh, the world in one conversation here, or do we have to break this conversation up into two? Because, of course, the U.S. did its thing on regulation. The U.K. did something different. I mean, in the U.K., a lot of the power was put into the Bank of England, wasn't it? 
Yes, and the main point that I was making, well, I think there are two, two main points. One is about the United States specifically, and there I think people should pay more attention to what Paul Volcker has been saying. Paul Volcker, in my long experience in financial markets, is usually right, and he has pointed out that all of the analyses of the crisis point to the fact that the US regulatory system was balkanized and it was very hard to produce one coherent view. And that remains the case. The US remains the one country on the planet which regulates cash, equities and derivatives by different regulators. It's the one country where there is a multiplicity of banking agencies, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, the FDIC, the state regulators, and where almost nothing has been done since the financial crisis to rationalize that system. There's a second point at global level, um, and I think the two dimensions to that. One that Gordon Brown has made today, which is at the time of the crisis in 2008-9, there was a coming together globally of people who saw the world in the same way, who understood mm. each other's problems and who acted decisively. Can we say that the basis of international trust is there at the moment? Yes. With the war of words between Donald Trump and the EU, the UK splitting from the uh, EU, not exactly warm relationships with uh, Russia and China on these fronts. And so would there be the basis for common agreements internationally if there was another crisis? And is this a real fear then within financial services? Because I saw those words from Gordon Brown today. I also spoke to Sir John Gieve, ex of the Bank of England, of course, was there during the crisis, and he made the same point. He said uh, George Bush uh, Jr. at the time was president, President George Bush, and he was the one who approved some of the Fed action, even though he said Congress stood in the way. And could we rely on the president of the United States to, to allow the Fed to do what was needed in terms of cooperation? How deep-seated is this fear then in financial services here? Yeah, I think people are concerned. And, and they're also concerned about what weapons the authorities now have. Because interest rates remain extremely low. At the time, if you remember, there was quite a lot of headroom for the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England and the ECB yes. to bang interest Felt rates quick. down um, and to engage in a large amount of QE. Well, they're still all over the financial markets through QE and interest rates, although they have started to go up and a bit more in the US than here in Europe, nonetheless, there's not much weaponry yes. left in their arsenal. So I think those two concerns are linked. Tom. Sir Howard, good morning. I want to talk here a little bit about Lehman, and then we're going to have to migrate to Turkey with the movement in lira uh, that we see in Turkish lira. Right now, let's bring up the interday in lira. I really want to keep up to date on this uh, worldwide. Mr. Erdogan is speaking, and we've got a real explosion in Turkish lira, 636 out to 642. Mm. Howard, uh, back to Lehman, if we could. You took a commanding heights position as head of the FSA before the crisis. More than anyone else I know, you were the one that was supposed to maybe see it coming. By no means were you uh, uh, wrong in your insight at the time. But to me, it was the amplitude that surprised Howard Davies, the amplitude that surprised Noel Rubini and others. What did we get wrong at the time about scope and scale? Well, look, I, I don't want this to be um, a, an exercise in self-justification, but just to be clear, I did leave the regulator in 2003. Yes. And if you look at the explosion of leverage, it took place between 2003 exactly. and 2007. Sir Howard, Simon so, Johnson has nailed this. You're absolutely right. Yeah. In June... In, in June of 2004, we, we saw this. So, Sir Howard, very clearly, tell us about that moment when leverage exploded. 
Well, what was uh, surprising, and I think we did see the beginning of it in 2003, was the arrival on the scene of derivatives like uh, CDS uh, in particular, uh, but also the tranching of securities, uh, which allowed people to magnify credit. Um, and as you know, the, the uh, CDOs and CDOs squareds had just started to come on the scene. And I did comment at the time that I was concerned about the toxic waste, which I've described in a rather vivid phrase, I guess, um, at the bottom of this system, whereby the, the lower tranches of these securitizations were nonetheless being traded uh, as if they were fairly solid assets. Indeed, through some magical process, they, some of them were given AAA status by the rating agencies. So I think we did see the germs of that, but the way in which it exploded over the next three or four years was a surprise to everyone. And I think looking back, you have to say, well, should monetary policy have been tougher? Because monetary policy is, after all, the most effective thing. And I think that, in retrospect, interest rates in the US should have risen more. And should regulators also have started to embrace these derivatives? And I think mm -hmm. that actually goes back to my balkanized regulation point. Uh, because as we know now, yeah. there were lively debates in the US between the Fed and the OCC and the CFTC and the SEC who couldn't agree on quite how these derivative products should be regulated. And I think that's the point, like coming back to my first point, that Paul Volcker's making. Yeah. Has that changed? Okay. Answer no. And you say he's right. We should yes. listen to him. We are honoured to have a morning with Brad Hintz, I think, who's staying yes. with us through TV and staying with us through radio as well. Brad Hintz, the former Lehman CFO and NYU professor, joins us now. Good morning to you, Brad. Good morning. Let's look back 10 years. Solvency crisis or liquidity crisis? What did that bank actually face? A liquidity, no question about it. You lost repo, which, uh, hey, you lost commercial paper. Your clients were selling back uh, long-term debt. Uh, your counterparties were asking for more collateral. Um, typically, financial institutions don't die for lack of equity. They die because of a funding run. What does the response 10 years on look like? Because what strikes me as amazing 10 years on is there is still huge debate about whether the response was the right response from regulators, from government officials to allow this bank to fail. It was a mistake to to let the let it fail. The um, you you scared the market, and in scaring the market, it was that uncertainty which led to the next thing, right? Which was everybody pulls in their lending, everyone pulls in their counterparty risk, and well, you have a global credit reduction. Did it fail because there wasn't a Jamie Dimon there to write the check because he was preoccupied with a previous failure, Bear Stearns? Was it just simply there wasn't somebody else equivalent? In other words, there weren't there there wasn't uh, there wasn't a marriage a, partner. Yeah, there was the, well or a divorce partner, whatever you want to call it. But I don't know where I got that. But 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 Brad, Mr. Diamond was exhausted from bailing out Bear Stearns, and there was no obvious candidate to take out Lehman. Is that right? Well, you you had Barclays at one point, right? You had, um, and 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 certainly you had Bank of America as another name. We, we we've all read the history on this. Yeah, that there were a number of things going on. I, I think the the issue you have is a management team at Lehman that was looking at this versus the history of other liquidity events, right? As a result, their balance sheet continued to rise through nineteen to, through two thousand. 
eight, right? You said earlier this was an opportunity for Mr. Fold. That's how they looked at it. Well, in terms of, of liquidity events are an opportunity in fixed income. In essence, you're buying good assets at a troubled price. If you have enough funding to make it through the, right. the crisis, you're fine. Lehman had 12 months in their liquidity plan. And who would have guessed that a liquidity event in mortgage backs would swing across the entire credit market, ultimately into the government market? Mm -hmm. So you know, there was the, the issue. I think we have an example. I mean, there's an example of Solomon Brothers um, facing a liquidity event in the 1990s, and their CFO put their, you know, raised their internal cost of funding, put their balance sheet into a nosedive, shed assets. And that bought them time, and they made it through that liquidity crisis. Had Lehman done the same thing? I mean, think of what Goldman did. Goldman, not only did they, they made a bet against it, but they also did not grow their balance sheet. Goldman pulled in their horns. Lehman did not. Yeah, Lehman yeah. and distinction. And and that was that that really set the stage as the as the markets became ever illiquid. Lehman was stuck with a concrete side of its balance sheet its asset side froze its liability side ran off and you know the end of the you know the end of lehman occurred the, the surprise was the fed right because the fed had taken action with bear and the fed had taken action by allowing the broker dealers to have access to the to the discount window yeah. the assumption um, among observers was the fed was going to make sure that this was orderly and the Lehman balance failure was not orderly, and there was the problem. So let's pick up on that, and a final question. Use the word panic. Officials now believe they have the structures, the regulations, to allow for an orderly failure of a bank. When it actually comes to it, if we ever have to face a crisis like this again, whether it's in 10 years, 20, 30 years, wherever it is, do you actually see the government and officials applying the rules that they currently have to allow for an orderly failure of a bank ever again in the United States? The, um, the Fed needs to be able to lend wherever, they, wherever there is a need. They're, they're tied up too much at this point. In essence, we've established a set of rules that will be just perfect in the last crisis, and they, we don't know what the next crisis will be. I mean, with this, it goes back to Badgett, folks. For those of you not keeping score, Badgett was a London banker that... Uh, uh, and, and journalist who, who decided we have to be the lender of the last resort. If Mr. Paulson was sitting here or Mr. Geithner, they would state to you that they had a lender of last resort responsibility to bail out the system. Obviously, they did that with an expanded balance sheet in all that. In 2020 hindsight, how do we get forward? As we look back, all with the luxury of 2020 hindsight, what's the key lesson 10 years from now? What is the key lesson? What, we, what did we learn from 10 years ago that's going to be the key lesson when this happens 10 years forward? You need a, you, you, you need a strong team like we had. Those, uh, the three gentlemen who, right. uh, who, who ran the crisis stepped up and put their own careers on the uh, on the line had they sucked their head in the sand this yeah. you know we would have had faced a depression they didn't they moved very very quickly we can argue about whether lehman was a mistake or an underestimation right. but they clearly right. moved which and you can see it right. from the u.s economy u.s economies I, come back better than others Brad Hitz, thank you so much honored to have you with us with new york university 
If you are in Paris, you have to send someone to America. BMP Paribas, three decades ago, sent Jean-Yves Fillon. Critically, he was involved in the BMP Fortis transaction and has done tours of duty in Los Angeles where he worked on his tennis game in Chicago where on Lake Michigan he went sailing a lot and wandered over to New York to command the BMP Paribas flagship in America. Uh, Jean-Yves Fillon joins us uh, this morning. We are thrilled to have you uh, here at this tumultuous time for banking. Much to talk about in the hour. First of all, what was the single lesson you've learned from the Lehman debacle. Well, Tom, by the way, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're very well informed, by the way, on my tennis game. Um, I think the first lesson was uh, not all crises are predictable. And it was very well said before. Uh, uh, the world got a little bit caught uh, uh, by surprise, even though some signals were already there. I think the second dimension we all learned was uh, I don't think we had collectively totally assessed uh, the interconnectivity uh, mm-hmm. between the various uh, you know, entities and countries uh, and the world was already very interconnected. Uh, otherwise, uh, I believe that the world today is so different from 10 years ago. It was already said, um, you know, the banking industry right. specifically is better capitalized, is more liquid. Uh, the, stress, the stress testing being implemented here in the United States, now in Europe, I think have uh, provided a, a lot of uh, uh, improvements, as well as all the work that has been done around living well, uh, resolution planning. I'm not right. saying this is riskless. I'm just saying it's, uh, it's, it's a very different governance at work. To uh, set this hour up for American audience, I want to make clear, BNP Paribas is the dominant bank of France and with a huge European platform, a retail platform, but also an expansive and early vision to Asia as well. And the message this week, Jean-Yves, has been that Lehman was opportunistic and trying to get out front and to do, do, do. Your bank is the polar opposite. Do you worry now that in other banks we're seeing too much opportunistic tone that could get them into trouble? You know, Tom, uh, it's an excellent point. At the end of the day, it's only about size. It's only about business model. It's really about risk management, risk appetite, and uh, risk identification, which I think the banking industry as a whole has made a significant progress. Uh, to your point, as it relates to BNP Paribas, what has worked well over the many years is uh, uh, diversification. Diversification in terms of geographical diversification, Europe, a European leader, Americas, we are deeply involved here, and Asia, but diversification as well in terms of uh, product mix and in terms of activity. If, if I uh, uh, go to our platform here in the United States, um, it's a diversified platform, as you just said. You know, we have retail, we have wholesale. Retail mm-hmm. is Bank of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have two and a half million clients. Right. We, we, we do lending, uh, consumer finance. Wholesale, it based in New York, is uh, serving corporates uh, uh, domestically, internationally. Mm-hmm. 16,000 people and 6 billion of you revenues. You have 16,000 people? 16,000 people in the United States. In the, I did not right. know that. In the United States. Well, Francine? Yeah, Jean-Yves Fillon, talk to me a little bit about whether the French bank differently to the Americans. And so do you need to speak to your customer differently? 
Uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, 16,000 people in the United States, uh, uh, 6 billion of revenues. This is the largest balance sheet allocation uh, uh, for the bank uh, after France. Then uh, in terms of speaking to clients here, we, we feel very part of the fabric of the U.S. Having said that, uh, uh, our, I think one of our differentiating factors here is we can serve clients domestically uh, um, probably as well as any other banks in the product suite we have, but when it's time to cover them outside of the United States, let's say do capital raising, acquisition financing for large U.S. corporates in the urban market where we lead, this is where uh, we uh, probably can uh, add even more contribution to the client base here. But to your point, Francine, uh, and based in London, I'm sure you see that. Uh, conversely, uh, we've been very active in taking US, uh, European clients into the deep US market, uh, leveraging our uh, large distribution capabilities, particularly debt distribution capabilities in the United States. And having an ability to raise you know, US dollar capital here and, and euro uh, 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 in, in, on the other side of the Atlantic has, has worked pretty well, uh, while the transatlantic uh, flow and dynamic has been quite active over the last few years. But how will finance change over the next 10 years? Is it five to 10 years, Jean-Yves? Is it digitalization? Is it the way we work? Or is it the way that banks actually lend to each other? You mean, uh, you mean looking forward? Oh, exactly. In the next 10 years, how will finance change? Well, it's, uh, I, I love the question, Francine. I think at times I feel one year is a really long term for me. But having said that, uh, I believe that the, the future of banking here, obviously it's around business model, it's around serving clients, but it's, I think it's around uh, uh, other dimensions that maybe we don't speak enough. I think, for instance, uh, obviously the first uh, uh, dimension is uh, uh, technology. It's uh, automatization. It's uh, uh, electronification, uh, uh, artificial intelligence. I believe that technology, if it's well done, is going to provide uh, a safer world and, uh, and the concept of low touch and high touch to serve clients more mm -hmm. efficiently is, is happening, but this is part of the future. There is another dimension which I believe is very connected with what you do here at Bloomberg. This is sustainability. Uh, uh, the, the banking industry has a real role to play in this field uh, to support uh, the, 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 the planet and the future of the planet oh, better. Oh. And I think to be really even closer to our clients' value. This is really important because I was in Paris with Francine for the Paris Agreement. And, of course, folks, we should state that Michael Bloomberg, uh, the owner of Bloomberg, uh, and these radio and TV properties was very much part of that agreement. Does the Paris Agreement still stand even as President Trump says no? I believe the Paris Agreement, you know, COP21, COP22 still stands more than ever. Uh, as you know, actually, in a few days here, there is going to be the Sustainability Week from the United Nations. I think Michael Bloomberg with uh, his uh, forum is going to be extremely active. My group, CEO Jean-Laurent Malafé, will be in New York mm -hmm. and will be very proactive here. Listen, uh, you love statistics and metrics, Tom and Francine. If you look at the world today, you have over 22 trillion of savings every year, new savings. To reach the uh, United Nations S um, SDGs, you, between quotes, only need five to seven trillion a year to reach the 2025, you know, objectives. Right. That's very doable. But the finance industry well, has a real role to play here. This bank, BNP Paribas, has been one of the very first global financial institutions to actually commit to the UN to provide over 10 billion 
of uh, financing linked to sustainability okay. by 2025. That's what to talk about here with Johnny Filon of BNP Paribas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.